welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay Sequetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetan Ulu, although I am calling in this week from Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. Today's text, stolen by Anne Helen Lastidius, is set in northern Sweden, which is part of Sapmi, which is in Sami territory. And Joe, we're reading mm-hmm. another, well, engaging with another Sami text in response to the encouragement we got after doing Sami blood. This is true. Yeah. So folks, if you went back and listened, I think we did a mailbag because we did hear from listener Evelina. So I'm just going to remind folks what Evelina said. So they encouraged us to check out Stolen because we we were interested in some aspects of Sammy Blood that we felt were a little bit underdeveloped or that we, we wanted something slightly different from that text. And Evelina said, you might find that you'll get that from Stolen. So they also wrote, note that the Sami people have often been related to reindeer keeping, but that is just one part of Sami culture that the government of Sweden did not completely ruin. They continue to say it's now the most prominent part of Sami culture compared to forest keepers who have been almost completely erased and even forgotten by their relatives because the forest was way too valuable to the government and the colonizers to let Sami people keep it. And I thought that that was interesting because I recognize we haven't even introduced the book Stolen, but there are inklings of that in the text like that and mining are kind of alternative industries that the narrative seems to brush up against or there's tension about like who has control of the land and who was given permission to do what they like yeah and the characters encounter racism in all kinds of places but in those industries that like mining for example is clearly a place Mm -hmm. where it's very difficult to be sammy within the context of the text Uh, and so we have this really important i think reflection on like yeah as you you said joe like who's in control of the land or like who keeps the land and whose practices are valued there's one point in the text where like everybody gets told they're not allowed to like run snowmobiles during a certain window Mm -hmm. because the reindeer are having their babies and like the white people in the village lose their minds and apparently this happens like every year and they're like <laughs> it's gonna happen again next year like this idea of you can really see this discomfort that the non-sammy population has with being told what to do by sammy people and it's a very different mm-hmm. dynamic in a lot of ways than what we experience here in north america but that notion that like white supremacy means never having to say i'm sorry well that's really prominent here <laughs> this is true so brenna before we get too ahead of ourselves do you want to attempt to do a plot synopsis because even though folks yes this is book club and we can thank victoria and tea books and chocolate for writing in i gathered that there may have been a number of folks who either didn't get to this text because it might have been a little too geographically specific you know we were lucky enough to get a translation of it which is why we can cover it but it's also quite a long text. 
Okay, Joe, so I'm going to I'm going to try with this plot summary, but it's a really cyclical circular plot. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So, if I miss out on something important, you can jump in like you always do. Why am I giving you permission anyway? Um <laughs> So the book is told in three parts. And the first part, we meet nine-year-old Elsa. She's the daughter of Sammy Reindeer Herders. She's very connected to the community. And she's already really aware that despite the fairly strict gender roles within her community, she wants to look after reindeer. Like, she feels deeply connected to reindeer. Mm -hmm. And so one day for the first time ever, she skis out to the reindeer corral by herself, which she's never done before. Uh, And when she gets there, she sees that a man has murdered her reindeer calf, the one that she has been kind of like looking after. Mm -hmm. And he makes eye contact with her, makes this gesture that he's like going to kill her and disappears. And so begins (laughs) this sort of lifelong silence that... Elsa maintains about who has killed the reindeer, even though everybody in the town kind of knows. She never speaks about it because she's really scared that her family is going to be killed. Right. And pause for one moment, because folks, if you do end up getting excited or interested to read this text and you have not done so, major content warning for animal death, because we go into what happens to these reindeer. Like we are regularly killing these animals and it's graphic. It is graphic because the guy doing it is a like he's a a troubled man. (laughs) He is a piece of garbage. Yeah, he really is. So in this first part of the novel, what really happens is we meet Elsa's family, we meet the other reindeer herders, we get to know the people in the village who are like Mm -hmm. not super thrilled to share space with the Sammy. We learn about how their livelihood works, the sort of seasonal cyclical nature of it. And we get the first glimmers of the impact actually of climate change on this way of life and how difficult it's going to be for them going forward. The most important recurrent plot point though, is this idea that when reindeer are murdered, it's not treated as like a murder. It's not a crime. No. It's not a crime. It gets treated as a theft. So Yeah. So like it's kind of I mean, I don't know what the Swedish equivalent is, but it's basically like a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. And the police don't take it seriously, even though there's this huge pattern of behavior. So in part two of the book, we're ten years later Elsa is now a much more prominent member of the reindeer herding community. She's really sort of taken a place there, even if some of the older men don't really like it. Mm -hmm. She's quite vocal. Yeah, she's 19 now, and she's a teacher part-time. But what she really is, is like part-time reindeer murder investigator. (laughs) She's (laughs) obsessed with collecting enough evidence because there's this part of Elsa, and I really... I think this is the part of Elsa's character that connected with me the most. Mm -hmm. There's this part of Elsa that really believes that if she can just show people the right thing, they will Mm. do it. She has an awful lot of faith, even after being disappointed so many times by all of these systems, that if she can just collect enough evidence, the police will have to take her seriously. Yeah. And she seems to be making inroads because there's a new police officer. Like, the older ones are very jaded. They just absolutely do not care. Like, they treat... They're racist. They're fully racist. So every time they get called out, you you can basically see and hear them audibly groaning about, oh, this is just such a waste of our time. There's other more important things to do. And 
I think one of the things I really like about the book is that it's so completely evident that they feel that way. And even though we go back to it time and time again, it doesn't feel like we're being hit over the head with, hey, this is egregiously racist behavior. Like, it's made very clear, but not in a way that feels like it's hand-holding the audience. No, not at all. And I think, too, so you said things start to change where it seems like Elsa is starting to make up ground. And that's because she goes to the media. Like, Mm -hmm. she reaches out to a local culture reporter and starts to talk to her about what's happening. She provides a lot of evidence. There becomes, it becomes clear that the police are, like, releasing the evidence back to the guy who's been doing it. So all these things start to unravel. And unfortunately, that puts Elsa in huge danger. So the guy Mm -hmm. who has been stalking the reindeer begins to stalk Elsa. And... Oh, and I didn't mention that the other undercurrent that recurs throughout this narrative is the idea of of death by suicide within mm-hmm. this community. So the end of part one is a beloved cousin to Elsa who dies by suicide. And then in the second part, Elsa's brother is battling thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. And then in the third part, we have kind of like the culmination, which is that Elsa's brother's desire to end his own life, Elsa's desire to find evidence, and this monster who's been doing these crimes for the last decade plus, they all sort of coalesce together yeah. in a big climax, which uh, is really difficult to read in some moments. And ultimately, there is some semblance of justice for Elsa and her people, although not not fully. No, it feels like we put a pin in yeah. the last decade, but like we have not solved anything. Like systemically, mm. it's very clear all the institutions, all the people who structure the lives, both within Elsa's own community, like she hasn't really changed men's idea of what women no. are capable of, but the larger impact of the systemic racism that the Sami people encounter has definitely not been alleviated. It's just that this one dude who threatens to kill Elsa and more or less stalks her family for more than a decade has been laid to rest because of a horrible tragic accident. Yes. And a a horrible plan to end his own life that Mateus, her brother, does Mm -hmm. not end up following through on. And so... So unexpected. So unexpected. I found the third part incredibly gripping. I actually found all of the book really page-turny, which I wasn't expecting. I definitely went into this thinking it was going to be a fairly sort of dark literary fiction experience. And it Mm -hmm. is dark, don't get me wrong. And it is definitely (laughs) literary fiction. But there are many parts that really read like a thriller. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the comparators I've noticed on the kind of commercial fiction side, like this book gets compared to Joe Nesbo, to a lot of the sort of Swedish noir writers Hmm. of the recent era interesting and that is true but i think that if you go into it thinking it's a straightforward crime book you're gonna be surprised by how much it really is a story of sort of survival of the sammy way of life and Mm -hmm. whether or not that's even possible in the wake of climate change and one of my favorite relationships is between Hannah, who lives next door to Elsa, um, and Hannah has a son named John Isaac, Mm -hmm. and Elsa teaches at the school. And every time Elsa goes to the media or tries to make progress on dealing with the crimes that their family is facing, she ends up making it harder and harder for this little guy at school because Mm -hmm. he's being bullied all the time. And there's this notion of like, 
even just asking for fairness or justice turns the family into targets. That's a recurrent theme in the book that I found extremely powerful. Yeah. But yeah, Joe, what did you think? What did you think of this book? Did you, was it page turny for you? It definitely was. I'll confess it took me a little while to get into it. And you mentioned the cyclical nature of the story. And sometimes I can't say that this book is truly YA. Like I know that we're having conversations recently Mm -hmm. about the difference between YA and NA and adult fiction. And this one definitely struck me as I think this is an adult book with young adult characters for a large portion of the quote unquote runtime. But I ended up really liking it in the end, but I did find myself slightly frustrated by so much of the book is just these frustrating repetitions where Elsa is trying to make everyone's life better and no one appreciates her and the police don't (laughs) listen. And this horrible man, Robert Isaacson, is just wreaking havoc with their lives. So like Mm -hmm. you, you fall into an almost rhythm and you don't expect anything to change to the point that I think Tea Books and Chocolate even references in her email, the ending is unexpected because you don't think anything is going to change. Like you think that it's just going to play out indefinitely because clearly nothing has worked. Like when you jump ahead to part two and we're still dealing with the same things, Mm -hmm. it is so disappointing, not from a narrative point of view, but from like a social justice point of view. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is that this book manages to really only be about like maybe five characters, maybe Mm -hmm. six. And yet it's so clearly about systemic failure. Like the fact that the same problems keep coming up again and again, you're like, oh, yeah, like this is impossible to resolve with the systems the way they are. It takes like a new bloodthirsty reporter and a new police officer with fresh Mm -hmm. eyes. It takes like a lot of change to the system just to make this one little minor change to what these characters are experiencing. And it still doesn't ultimately end up changing anything, right? Like despite all of these new people coming in and treating this with fresh eyes, the only reason that anything happens to Robert is because it intersects with Mateus's storyline, which mm-hmm. I will confess, I was actually a little bit more interested in Lass's and Mateus's yeah. and Hannah's storyline. Like the way that the culture doesn't accept death by suicide or depression and how we're given glimpses that this is a struggle, right? Like you mentioned Hannah, that's the neighbor. She's Lass's sister. And no one can understand why he ends up killing himself because he was the happiest guy in the entire Mm -hmm. community. He was the one who traveled. He's very obviously secretly queer. And I read Mateus as they were in love, but Mm. Mateus never accepts it. And Lass ends up going away and killing himself. Oh, interesting. I did not read that. I definitely read Mm. Lass as Queer. I didn't read Mateus as Queer, but I did read um, Elsa and her lawyer friend, Mina. Mm. Definitely read Mm -hmm. them as Queer. Okay, I can see it. That came up in somebody's email as well. I think it's interesting because Elsa, like, Lass's death hangs over the entirety of the back half of the... Well, because they never talk about or deal with it. Hmm. Yeah, because it makes people uncomfortable, which is, I don't think it's a distinctly Sammy issue, but you very much get the impression that 
the sami are reserved and slightly judgy like they're very traditional in certain practices of their life and i think they're trying desperately to hold on to cultural habits that not just the government not just the police but also society at large are trying to tell them this is antiquated and you need to let it go like you need to accept snowmobiles into your life you need to accept climate change like even when we try to do like a change to the way that the the calfing separation happens and we do it indoors with a roof there's a bunch of people who say no you can't do it that way (laughs) well and what's interesting right is you know it's very similar to the kinds of articulations we see here which is like in the Canadian context, it's settlers saying, like, why do we have to, like, protect indigenous ways of life if mm-hmm. they're going to, like, not be, like, not live, quote, unquote, traditionally? And it's like, well, it's not actually, like, your judgment to determine that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I might bring in Victoria's email at this point oh, yeah. because she has some good points to say about that. So she says some of the most hurtful parts of the text are the casual xenophobia of the Sami people. The xenophobic comments seem to portray the Sami as leeches who suck up resources, take advantage of the land that white Swedes see as their property, not as stolen land, and that they will sacrifice their own livelihoods of killing their own reindeer for financial benefits, which of course is like not true at all. Yeah. And Victoria continues saying, it just feels like bitter entitlement and ignorance, and it echoes a lot of racist and xenophobic sentiment that I can apply to any community. And then she shares, I've heard family members speak like this in terms of Muslims and immigrants and the use of xenophobia to make themselves the victims instead of reflecting on their own struggles and biases to help people who don't have the same privileges. And that definitely resonated with me. Like, I... Personally, I'm going through a tiff with my father Mm. because he sent me deeply offensive racist language in an email recently, and I'm like on the cusp of trying to figure out whether or not I can even engage with him Mm. anymore. And it's because of statements like that, like just willful ignorance, failure to recognize your own power, privilege, that sense of entitlement that these people are lesser or they've been given these unfair handouts. So reading this book at this particular moment in my life, I was like, oh, this is really hitting home right now. Oh, how interesting, Joe. And also awful. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that's a really powerful part of the book, though, right? Because like, there's no individual within the village who would like well, there's okay, there's a couple who like use specific anti-Sammy slurs, like mm-hmm. but the vast majority of people in the village just feel like they don't think of themselves and their neighbors as racist. They think that like there's this unfairness happening, whether it's like mm-hmm. they can't run their snowmobile at a certain time of the year, or like, why do the Sammy get to be in charge of the reindeer call? We want to kill and eat reindeer ourselves. And like, mm-hmm. you know, there's the restaurateur who's been buying this meat who does he wouldn't think of himself as be- engaging in like racist or xenophobic practices, except no, that he totally yeah. is. And I think what's interesting about the way the book is written is that we sit as outsiders to this community reading it in the English language in a North American publication, like this specific mm-hmm. iteration of the book, we're, we're definitely going to be reading it as outsiders. And it's so clear that there's this massive power imbalance within oh, yeah. the community that the people who are the beneficiaries of the power either don't or refuse to see. Mm-hmm. And it's very powerfully articulated without ever feeling like we're, you know, watching an after school special. Yes. There's one moment of the book that I found super didactic, but also probably really necessary. Okay. 
there's a portion where Elsa finally confronts Matthias about his mental health issues. Mm-hmm. It's when she realizes that the reason why the waiters that were down at the river are found by the guy who's been killing all the reindeer, the reason they get found and used and he drowns in them is because Matthias was planning to use them to drown himself. Mm-hmm. And Elsa figures it out. So she goes... She sits down with Matthias and she has this conversation with him about, like, mental health resources available for Sammy people. Right. And, like, she names the organization by name and, like, says mm-hmm. what they do. And where, and it feels a little bit like reading off the website. And also, at the same time, I can really see the necessity of, like, that having a space in this narrative. Like, mm-hmm. mental health of men in particular in this book is clearly a concern. And I'm with you 100% that I wanted to know more about both those characters because of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the only part that feels didactic. The rest of the way through the book, Anne Helen Leostatis does this beautiful job of teaching us without ever feeling like you're sitting in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Which is important because really, there's a lot of this book that is, well, most of this book is actually from Elsa's first person perspective. So like, we're really in her head. And she knows her stuff. So it's not mm-hmm. as though she's going to sit there being like, let me explain the calving season to you. <laughs> oh, wait, I already know that because I'm talking to myself. So it it is written in a way that I think is very accessible. Like it, it definitely gets across all the things that we as potential outsider readers need to know in order to understand the struggles of the Sami people. Like what are they dealing with both within their own sort of like way of life, but then also trying to still be a part of modern day Sweden. We should also note, I think one of the other things that really works is that this is not a historical tale. Like this is obviously very relevant to modern day Sami people. So yeah, part one is 2008, part two is 2018. So it's right up to the present moment. And that Mm -hmm. it's interesting that in that 10 year spread, the issue of climate change becomes even more pronounced as well. Like there's burbles about it in part one, but by part two, this community is like, we keep telling the government, why are they not doing anything? Mm -hmm. And it's, that made me feel sitting in like, (laughs) we were just talking before we started recording. (laughs) We We were talking about how it's so unseasonably hot and humid in Ontario right now. It's like, yeah, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? And then we look at our own lifestyles. But like, I do think that that aspect of it is really interesting. Like it's immediate, it's present. And I learned so much from this book without ever feeling like I was. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I did a little bit of research, Joe, there's only a very tiny handful of Sami books that have ever been translated into English. So books about Sami culture, Swedish books dealing and particularly by Sami authors, like Mm -hmm. there's just not very much for the English language reader to sit down and find. So super important. And like, you think about the cultural change that has happened in the last, I don't know, 40 years. Like, I learned the word lap, which is presented in this book as a slur against Sammy people. Like, yes, I learned that word in school learning about Santa Claus. And like, the Santa Santa Claus comes from Lapland. And it's like, Oh, wow. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) But like, holy cow, the the difference and the so the author here has a tremendous challenge ahead of her, and I, I think she takes it on really well. I think this is a book that's well worth anybody's time. Hmm. I mean, and as much as we're saying, oh, you know, it is teaching us stuff, but it's not doing it in a really just didactic or sort of blah kind of here's an educational lesson sort of way. 
this is an exciting book. Like It's so exciting. <laughs> I, I could, you know, okay, let's not sugarcoat this because originally we were like, let's read this for book club because we don't have an adaptation. And even as we were about to jump in and start recording, we both recognize that apparently this has been optioned by Netflix. So we will have a film in the future. <sighs> Boo, Netflix for not announcing things in time for our programming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good thing we went to the freaking Simon and Schuster website because that's how I found it. But yep. what I think is fascinating is that I do see this as a deeply cinematic book. You know, it is a page turner. It is a thriller. My concern is that so much of this book is that it is also deeply cultural. And I am yep. concerned about those elements potentially being misplaced in favor of ooh, let's talk about robert isaacson and like his nefarious plans to kill reindeer without addressing yeah. you know why are the reindeer so important to the sammy people and so on well i will say this is my big concern with seeing the commercial parallels being drawn between this book and something like a joe nesbo thriller like mm -hmm. and that is no shade to joe nesbo i love me a little bit of scandy noir sure. absolutely um but i'm worried that if you shoot this as a straightforward scandinavian noir you're gonna be missing like mm -hmm. a lot of cultural resonance like this isn't the girl with the dragon tattoo there's something else going on here <laughs> and i really i just don't want I don't know. My trust in Netflix is shaken recently, Joe, and I just <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to see them miss the point here. Shockingly enough, Giant Corporation has made you feel less than at ease. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> so I do want to bring in tea, books, and chocolate, not to kind of pivot away, but just we don't have any idea about what's going to happen with the film. So I don't want to speculate too, too heavily, but I definitely acknowledge your concern, my concern. Conversely, I love Rampant Surmise, and I think it should be more of the show, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring in tea, books, and chocolate, because I I hadn't really given too much thought about the point that she wrote in about. Thank you again to Victoria and tea, books, and chocolate, because both of them sent in fairly sustained, very like carefully thoughtful, as always, considered responses. So we are cherry picking from the emails, but tea, books, and chocolate says... The way everything resolved with Robert Isaacson was so well done. I really like that we got moments from his point of view because he felt so real. Like there are so many people I know who are white settlers in the US who definitely value their dogs over the lives of indigenous people and their life ways and the animals that they're connected to. And then later in the email, T. Bucks and Chocolate says, there was a poetic justice that it was his love for his dog versus his cruelty to the reindeer that mm -hmm. leads to his death. And oh, I just had a chill. I literally just had a chill when you said that line from mm. Tea Books of Chocolate's email. Sorry. So this was interesting to me because I did definitely sit up and take notice when the perspective changes to him. Mm -hmm. Because I did not anticipate that we were going to get something like that. Because for a lot of the book, he plays almost a boogeyman role totally. for Elsa. He's just haunting her all the time. Especially in part one, right, when she's a child and the perspective is very much of a terrified child. Mm -hmm. And then there's a point in part three where Elsa says, like, I have been living in fear since I was nine years old. And, like, that perspective of Robert is the dominant one throughout mm -hmm. the text. Absolutely. But, yeah, we get his perspective and it's not sugarcoated. Mm -mm. 
it's not like that Hunger Games book we read, right? Where it was like, oh, I'm reading from the evil guy's perspective and he's good now or whatever. It's like... <laughs> you mean the prequel that we're getting a movie to this fall? Yeah, boo, boo. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, you know, but I do remember when we talked about that, Joe, I said, you know, like, I don't need every villain redeemed. Like, mm-hmm. I want to understand why someone does something without necessarily being asked to side with them. And right. that's handled beautifully in this book like we get enough of a glimpse of his psychology to understand where all this is coming from without Mm -hmm. it ever being justified or explained or or waved away and i think that's really skillful i agree yeah you know after i sort of got over my initial shock that oh i have to read from this character's point of view i really like that i had a better understanding of who he was and was what was driving him like he is a person who has had a run of bad luck he's dealing with an injury but also he's very clearly racist and he's taking out his wrath against the sammy people particularly against elsa and her family because they live close enough that he can get to them kill their reindeer disguise it or or just hide on his own property without being discovered by the police so like they are victims of proximity to his violence but i love the dichotomy it's because of his own relationship with his dog so it's not that he hates animals it's not that he hates the reindeer I mean, he actively profits from his violence by selling the reindeer meat. And we're told that when the police finally, finally investigate his property, they find all of these freezers with basically stolen meat that he has. Like a ring, like a ring of people who are profiting from this guy's Mm -hmm. crimes. Yeah. And then the police take credit for solving it. And it makes me so crazy. (laughs) So true. So true. (sighs) But I love that at the end of the day, it is... His love of his own dog, who is kind of an an elderly dog, who is in a way a very keen reflection of himself, where it's like he's old and wounded and lashing out and this dog is kind of the same. It just so happens that the dog comes upon Matthias as he's about to die by suicide. And Matthias, in this moment of anger himself, throws the dog to a nearby island (laughs) over the river or over like a stream and then... Robert Isaacson tries to save his dog and ends up drowning because he mm-hmm. put on these broken waders. It's I didn't know where the book was going to no. go. And that ending was so genuinely unexpected and surprising. Like I thought we were going to build to a moment of violence and instead it is just a horrible tragedy. And it really it made me stop and reflect upon the book as, oh, I think the whole book has actually just been a tragedy. It feels wrong to say it, Joe, because of what you've just described, but I was very satisfied by that ending. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that he died, I was not at all happy about. (laughs) No, but the fact that he dies, but that Elsa and Matthias don't do it, right? Like, because Mm -hmm. there's a sense in the text that, like, shit rolls downhill, right? And, like, throughout the text, we see how the kind of beleaguered and impoverished people of the village, they attack the Sami because they've feel powerless themselves and they feel Mm -hmm. unseen by the state right it's like classic white grievance politics it it could not be (laughs) more classic and so there's this we are building with the way 
Matthias is talking at first before you realize that that anger is being turned inward when Mm -hmm. we see Elsa go out with the rifle on her back. Like we're being sort of primed to see this showdown happen. And so when you get this ending where Robert is dead, Matthias and Elsa are both innocent. Matthias is saved. Matthias goes to get the care that he needs. It's actually Mm -hmm. like – it's an immensely satisfying ending given the context without it being like a saccharine ending, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then racism was solved. Like, no, but <laughs> no, <laughs> but we do, a lot of our characters do actually make some positive ground in a way that was genuinely refreshing considering how bleak so much of the book is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, in Tea Books and Chocolate makes that same observation. So she says, I'm glad that there was a moment of intergenerational healing with John mm-hmm. Isaac at the end. It gave me hope that these characters can live lives that are less full of pain and more full of familial love. Yeah, I agree. I love I love that about the ending. And I, Tea Books and Chocolate goes on in that email to note that she like she wants Minna to become a lawyer. We've barely talked about Minna. Mm-hmm. But Minna is a Sammy who is not from a reindeer herding community. I think it's a right. really important perspective to include in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, Minna is sympathetic to and interested in the politics of the reindeer herders. But her identity as a Sammy is not wrapped up in yes. reindeer, which I think is really important. She's training to become a lawyer. But yeah, uh, Tea Books and Chocolate has the same vibes that I did. Did anybody get queer vibes between her and Elsa? I want them to kiss. <laughs> I also wanted them to kiss. Um, there's this moment where Minna has shaved her head, which has turned the heads of all the men in the community because they're right. like, women shouldn't do that. Why mm-hmm. has this happened? And Elsa, all she wants to do is reach out and touch the bristles on mm. Minna's head. And she's like, it's all she can think about. And it's telling. I just very telling. <laughs> I really, really, really wanted them to kiss. I think it would have been weird if the book had actually made it that far, because that would be an awful lot of inner growth for Elsa, right. who is in many ways at 19, just beginning to discover who she's going to be in the world. And I think that's yeah. what makes this I agree with you, Joe, not a YA book, but totally a coming of age book, right? Because Mm. it's only through resolving this fear that Elsa has lived under since she was nine that she can begin the process of stepping into adulthood. Yeah, I don't at all disagree with you and Tea Books and Chocolate read of the situation, like reflecting back on it. Yes, it does seem very obviously queer. And yet I think it's because of the way that Elsa idolized lass that Mm -hmm. i i had difficulty ever reading her in a kind of sexual fashion because it seemed like his death impacted her apart from his his sister hannah who basically lose the ability to love anyone Mm -hmm. including including her her own daughter (laughs) just like oh that's so sad but it is it definitely seems like hannah and elsa are really the only ones who hold on to last and Mm -hmm. you know i I think we always need to be very careful about how we talk about suicide because you know there's a lot of victim blaming where it's like oh think of of the impact of what Lass's death does to elsa and how it like just leaves this vacant hole in her life and the same with hannah and i think that's really mean because the book actually does a very good job of indicating like we don't really know who Lass is as a character we Mm -hmm. almost learn more about him after his death but totally. it's very clear that he is a byproduct of a system that doesn't encourage people to talk or process their feelings. And in some ways, Elsa is very much the same, right? She can never process the trauma that occurred when she was nine and she 
had her life effectively threatened by a strange man. And I, I like this idea that their shared trauma, liked is a strong word. I like that they <laughs> both had a trauma. And in one case, it was overwhelming and it could not be conquered. And in Elsa's case, it provides her fuel, but it's also doing her irreparable harm. And it's only mm-hmm. when... Robert Isaacson is kind of in the ground that she and her brother and her parents and all of these other people can finally start to make a movement forward. Well, and Elsa is also so much more able to be, I don't know, forgiving and introspective about Lass's life in part two Mm -hmm. of the book than she is about her own, right? So there's a moment where she starts to reflect on what it must have been for Lass to go into the mines, knowing how Mm. racist that space is. Right. And she wants so badly to talk about it with Hannah because Hannah's the only other person who loved Lass the way she did. And she she mm-hmm. wants to, like, dissect his death the way they once shared his life. But Hannah's not capable of going no. there. And so it's so fascinating because I think Elsa develops almost more insights about the systemic nature of the racism that she's experiencing that goes beyond the reindeer herding Mm -hmm. through thinking through Lass's death than she had access to otherwise. And like Minna is the other person who opens that door and is like, actually there's like more going on here than, than just the reindeer as important as that is like, right. There are larger, bigger issues that we also need to resolve. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit? I'm not sure if you have any insights, but I thought it was very interesting the book has almost a supernatural spiritualism. Mm. Like there's a mm-hmm. suggestion that Elsa has inherited an ability to staunch blood flow. Like if yes. if someone was wounded, she could stop them from bleeding out. And also there's this idea that everything that happens at the end is actually because of Lass's spirit protecting or looking over Elsa and her brother. Yeah, so I would love to read more about this. And if any Mm -hmm. listeners have recommendations, please send them in because I'm very interested now in Sammy spirituality because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so interesting that we have the one grandparent who basically won't talk about anything to do with sort of like spirituality about like the curing of the disease laying on of hands, the spirit Mm -hmm. world, anything like that, because she's been strongly inculcated into you know the christianity of larger sweden the kind of schooling she went to schools yeah exactly we get of the notion of boarding schools here and that trauma and my understanding is that Anne helen uh, lestadis's next book is a ya book about the swedish boarding school system yes and a true ya book apparently and based on the experiences of her mother in that system so we'll keep an eye out for that, listeners. But I'm I'm interested in that aspect because it seems to me from the limited of what I know based on, you know, this book and Sammy Blood, mm-hmm. it, it seems to have a lot of parallels with how indigenous spiritualities in North America were were yes. attempted to be crushed by colonial systems. And you know, this notion it was once a it was once a global law right it was once like the law of the whole planet that if a country was inhabited by non-christians it wasn't inhabited at all right and so this notion of this clear gift that elsa has but that 
no one wants to talk about. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's one point where they even Hannah tries to call on her when um, Anna Steiner seems to be miscarrying. And it's like they can't get a hold of her. And it's like, what do you even yeah. do if you can't get a hold of, you know, like there's no one else to call? I'm I'm very interested in it. it there's a real sense of sort of the the quashing and the silencing of the other aspects of Sami culture. Like we'll tolerate the reindeer stuff because it's actually useful to the state, but the rest mm-hmm. of it remains suppressed. Right. And even, you know, there's this glimmer of the schooling system because Elsa goes to the Sami school, which is next door to the village school, and they share a cafeteria. I love that detail. I, I can imagine it was drawn from real life, but it paints such an evocative picture. Oh, yeah. Like totally. I mean, it's it's echoes of separate but equal, right? Exactly. Exactly. And this idea of like, and like the fact that the lunch lady hates the Sammy kids and it's like, and she's just allowed to work there anyway. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. but we never really learn about what Elsa is learning in school. And I was craving to know more about that. So I'm very curious about this next book. Mm. Yeah, I I can't say I'm excited because in some (laughs) ways, you know, I I think the common ground across tea, books and chocolate and Victoria was like, Wow, what a great, really hard to read book. <laughs> yeah. But it's so interesting, right? Because the content is hard, the mood is bleak, but there mm-hmm. were parts where I could not have put this book down for anything. Like I needed oh, to no. know what was going to happen next. When I got to part three, it was like, everybody needs to shut up and go away and leave me alone. Yeah. It was like, I'm just reading this in one <laughs> sitting now. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that I've read a book that had that that juxtaposition happening before where I was like <laughs> eager to turn the page and also like really bummed out about what I was reading <laughs> and dreading about like, how is this book going to resolve? Because it can't all be satisfactory. No, in many ways it did actually parallel my experience of reading girl with the dragon tattoo. I read the three books in like really quick succession. And then I, I remember putting down the third one and looking at my husband and being like, okay, I hate men now. <laughs> forever so just fyi like it, it had a similar vibe to me in that strong social justice focus mm-hmm. while being like just extremely edge of your seat grippy right yeah there's not a lot of books that do that no no not that immediately come to mind and i think that this adaptation really has its work cut out for it if it can capture any sort of semblance of that really difficult balance. Yeah. Oh, Joe, I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. We'll always have the book, even if the movie doesn't manage to quite hit it. But also, uh, maybe the book will open up a bunch of... Because let's be real, there's a bunch of folks who will never read this book, but they may check out a movie on Netflix. That's true. That's true. Hmm. So any final thoughts on Stolen? No, I just, I genuinely recommend this one as a read. I think that you won't regret picking it up. And um, also, like, you know, Joe and I are big proponents of, you know, using the library and, and getting books that way. But, like, this is one where I, if you've got you got a little bit of book money to spend, like, this is a great place to tell publishing we want to see more storytelling happening. So that's my little plug for that. This is true. Although I will say this is, like, such a random piece I don't know if it was that my copy had not been taken out from the library. I got a physical copy and it had that kind of parchment paper that the pages are uneven 
Deckled Edge, Joe. It's called Deckled Edge. I had the worst time trying, <laughs> trying, like, I just kept constantly flipping ahead two pages because the paper oh, no. quality was so challenging to work with. And I just thought, this is doing this book a disservice because I kept getting angry at the physical binding. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Well, go buy the ebook then, everybody. <laughs> it, it, it is just one of those things where I was like, visually, it looked very pretty. Like, I really appreciated when I picked it up. But then the actual process of reading was impeded by the paper choice. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Anyway, random observation. <laughs> no, it's good. There's a bunch of different covers out there. So I right. wonder if that's the experience of the other one. The U.S. release is much less pretty than the Canadian release, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Shall we wrap this one up and tell folks what we're doing next? Absolutely. Okay. So if we're looking ahead to our next book club, you want to be reading Alana the First Adventure by Tamara Pierce. I cannot get over how positive people are on the Twitters about us doing this book, Joe. <laughs> yes, although we were warned that apparently this book, you know, it's a it's an older book and it's maybe not as reflective of Pierce's current writing style. So we were just asked to be a little bit patient if some of it feels either a little bit old or just not quite. Uh, yeah, that's fair. We can do that. And so can you listeners. <laughs> <laughs> And then we've got our next full-length text. We're heading from Sweden to Australia with Tomorrow When the War Began. And we're going to look at both the film version and the first couple episodes of the TV show. So check out whatever you can find. Mm-hmm. And then we're heading to a mini-sode. If you're reading along with us, we're going to be reading a novel called Piglets, which is French. And you should definitely check out. I am enjoying this one so far, Joe. Yes. And we should credit uh, listener Laura for bringing that to our attention. Yes. And Miriam gets credit for Tomorrow When the War Began. Yeah, honestly, uh, a lot of our programming has been relatively easy these last couple of months because people just keep sending in really great recommendations. So, you know, if you have one, Brenna, maybe they could get in touch somehow. They can find us on Twitter on the hashtag HKHSPod or at HKHSPod for however long Twitter is going to continue to exist, Joe. Every day I log on, it's a little less pleasant. Where do they find you? (laughs) I can be reached at Remote. And that's also Instagram. So if Twitter does go, uh, you know, cheap, cheap bird silence, you can always reach me over on, well, just one of the other social media apps. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray on Twitter and most social media, but I'm at Mittenstrings on the Instagram. And if you've got something longer for us or you want to respond to this episode of Book Club or you're looking ahead to the next one, you can find us hkhspod at gmail.com to be considered for the mailbag. Excellent. All right. I liked reading this. I also have to say, Joe, mm-hmm. it was really nice to read about somewhere extremely cold this last week. <laughs> the timing was exquisite. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's like reading an ice cube. It was great. <laughs> um, until next time, folks, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye. And then this horrible man, Robert Isaacs... And this horrible man, um, and this horrible man, Robert Isaacson, nope.